Hello, everyone. This is Landon, and I'm here with, go ahead, Monique. Say hi. And Monique, obviously. Well, Monique's obviously here, but we have a plethora of people today. And so I am totally excited that we have Dr. Grant Innes here today, who is a founding member. Of course, he's super young, but at the same time, a founding <laughs> member of emergency medicine around the world. And it's so exciting that he is on our podcast, Monique. And he, he is here with another uber smart nurse I know named Sherry Stackhouse, who, uh, and oh, by the way, everyone, we're on Zoom. So that's why I'm waving, which you guys can't see. And I will let them tell you a little bit about themselves. And then we also have Alan, who is from the Recess Tonight podcast. And he is here as well, because hey, it's Zoom, why not everyone get on the same Zoom, and we are going to talk about some pretty cool stuff today. So uh, Grant and Sherry, why don't you introduce yourself, and then we'll go to Alan, and then we'll get right into it. Well, my name's Grant Dennis. I've been an emergency physician for many years now. I have uh, a little bit of a research career, and I have a very strong interest in diagnostic testing. And uh, because we're on Zoom and there's no video, you can't see that we're taping this during happy hour and it's tonic in my hand. <laughs> Perfect. And Sherry. Hi, everyone. I'm Sherry Stackhouse. I have been an eMERGE nurse for 25 plus years. Currently, I've taken a little sojourn over to um, informatics and developing an electronic health record for emergency departments. Awesome. And Mr. Allen. Greetings and salutations. This is Alan over here. I'm half of Recess tonight. My other co-bro or co-husband, if you will, is currently <laughs> off at some beautiful lake because he has people that want to see him and people that love him. Meanwhile, it's me here flying solo and you can't see my Zoom background, but I've got Poseidon back there. <laughs> You need to get a life, Alan. I know. I do. I really do. And it's a bit of an interesting one um, for this podcast. I'm trend. Uh, I'm currently in the midst of career transition. I'm uh, starting my studies in nurse practitioner in September, and uh, Monique McLaughlin and I are because she's you know fairly seasoned in the realm of nursing. I think she's been a nurse for about seventy years or so. <laughs> Um, I think Paul McCartney was a baby when she first started. But uh, we are starting a, a podcast called Handover Report, where we will go through cases as I'm learning about them through school, and we will reflect them uh, from a novice like myself onto an experienced person like Monique. Cool. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to listening to that. And maybe I can be on it once in a while and remind Monique that she's the seasoned nurse practitioner. Oh, God. You know what? I, it is, you know, Florence Nightingale and I were classmates, you know. Let, I, let's exactly. just be clear about that, you know. <laughs> I'm glad you're finally admitting it. So, uh, so we're, why we're here today is to hear from Grant about his uh, interesting topic around diagnostic testing. And I know that we usually over a drink get into a debate once in a while and we haven't seen each other for a while and i said it's because all the conferences are canceled we we do see each other at conferences often 
And we all love talking to Grant about why we should or shouldn't do diagnostic tests and should nurses automatically be entering these sorts of things. And it's a great discussion that we love to get into. And so we thought, hey, let's do a podcast. And we've been wanting to do it for about a year. And so now we're doing it. So I think to start, I'm just going to hand it over to uh, Grant. And I think you're going to kind of chat us through a few cases. And then obviously, we'll all throw in our opinions or questions. So I, I did sort of put together a couple cases that illustrated uh, some, of the, some of the real concepts behind diagnostic testing. So I guess we could, uh, we could just uh, preface this by, I, I, I would first like to say the reason that we order diagnostic tests is to make a diagnosis. And if you order a test, hopefully you wanna order a useful test, and a useful test should do three things. It should actually distinguish uh, patients who have the disease versus those who don't. And so that refers to the sensitivity and specificity of a test. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing a test should do is it should tell you something that you don't already know, because most diagnoses are quite apparent after a clinical exam. Yes. And the third thing that a diagnostic test should do is it should in some way uh, help you make a decision and it should change the management uh, that the patient gets in a way that improves that patient's outcome. And if you actually look at what proportion of diagnostic tests make a difference for patients, it's probably something very sad in the range of five to 10%. So, Anyway, when you, when you look at these cases, uh, what you should be doing is thinking, what diagnostic tests might I order that would make a difference for this patient? Mm -hmm. So the first case I put together is a case that you would probably see about four times a day in any emergency department. Uh, so a 23-year-old woman presents with one day of intense urgency, frequency, dysuria. Now, the reason that she came to the emergency department, there's starting to be some blood in her urine. She feels okay, not febrile, doesn't have abdominal pain, doesn't have back pain, doesn't have a discharge, uh, and only has one sexual partner. So, in a case like this, young, otherwise healthy woman with uh, um, symptoms of a lower UTI, what diagnostic tests might be appropriate. And so I've said, well, maybe a CBC, a urinalysis, a serum creatinine, a urine culture. D-dimer. <laughs> D-dimer is always good. That's a joke, everyone. Please, for God's sake, don't order a D-dimer. I'm sure that's going to be one of the cases in a while. <laughs> I would think only a urine dip. I mean, if the urine dip plus the history sounds like a UTI, Grant, for me, if you're asking me, I would dip the urine. If it shows she's got leukocytes, then I would just treat her. Like, I, I, um, like what, if, what if you're wrong? She'll get worse and she'll come back. Ah, good one. Good one. Any, any other thoughts? Any other tests that... You know, you guys would think are important to do. Well, I guess I I would, and and probably uneducated 
pattern nurse of me would probably want to send a urine culture off in case it's something weird and wonderful. I would actually echo that, um, the value of the urine culture after, just in terms of follow-up and sensitivity um, yeah. or resistance. But, uh, but I think if she, if she looked good, I probably wouldn't do like CBC and like white count and all that stuff. I would probably just think she's 23 and, and as Monique said, could come back if she gets worse. Well, it sounds like she looks well. Me yeah. personally, I'm going to play devil's advocate here and say I have a high pretest probability for a uncomplicated UTI. I, I would say just give her uh, whatever appropriate antibiotic and then just use shared decision making. If you feel worse, back pain, etc., cetera, um, come back and see your healthcare provider. I think there's a difference in the history, right, Grant? Because if this is her fourth UTI in, you know, the last four to five months, um, and she's, you know, gets better, and then she, she gets it again, that sort of thing, I think in those cases, I would send a culture and sensitivity, because it doesn't sound like, you know, it, it's a simple um, cystitis. But if it's her first one, um, she just you know, she just got married maybe or whatever, and she's got honeymoon cystitis. It, it's kind of appropriate, but if there's some complications that this is her fourth one, then I probably would send a culture. But, you know, the likelihood if she's not somebody who takes a lot or has lots of UTIs for her to have a resistance is probably kind of low. So I don't know. I just don't think it would be necessary. Right. So, so I think anytime that you're thinking about ordering a diagnostic test, uh, the way you should think of it in your brain is imagine a um, estimating a level of diagnostic certainty as if a, there's a line, a 10 centimeter line that goes from 0% diagnostic certainty to 100% diagnostic certainty and getting a sense in your brain, where does this patient sit um, after I've examined them and talked to them? how likely do I think that this diagnosis is? And if you're very certain that this is what the diagnosis is, um, if you're already beyond what, what would be called a, a positive decision threshold and you think you know the diagnosis, if you know the diagnosis, you don't need to do a diagnostic test. Just treat the diagnosis. Yeah. Very, if you have a very low likelihood of that diagnosis, you say, well, I, I don't need a diagnostic test. That's not what it is. Um, then you say, okay, well, I'm not going to treat that. I'm going to look for something else. And so really it's only when you're in this kind of diagnostic gray zone that you should start thinking about ordering tests to either increase the likelihood or decrease the likelihood that your diagnosis is present. So, so in this case, uh, do you guys have any other thoughts like is there anything else this could be? Like, is there something else that could cause these symptoms and, you know, that might be going wrong here? I don't know. Does she have something in there? <laughs> well, no, good point. I mean, she could have a, like a vaginal foreign body. Uh, yeah. cause some irritation and dis urgency and discomfort. Um, uh, so anyway, with that history, I thought, okay, this is more than, without doing any tests or even looking at her urine, more than 90% chance this is a bladder infection, uh, maybe a 5% chance this is PID, 
maybe a 1% chance she's got a bladder stone or an ectopic pregnancy, really unlikely. So, um, and, and pretest likelihood is a really critical concept. You can't actually order a test or interpret a test unless you know what the pretest likelihood is. So, uh, pretest likelihood just means how probable is this diagnosis uh, after you've talked to the patient and looked at the patient and thought about it, but before you've done any testing. And so in this case, you know, young woman, frequency, urgency, blood in the urine, uh, pretest likelihood of a bladder infection is about 95% with very low pretest likelihoods of some other stuff and low enough pretest likelihoods of PID or ectopic. I wouldn't do any testing. Uh, to look for those things, uh, and with a 90 plus percent pretest likelihood of a bladder infection, I would I would be comfortable treating her with a urine dip or with nothing. Uh, even just saying, even if the urine dip is negative, this is so likely to be a bladder infection. The smart thing to do is just treat it. Now, I am a nurse by trade, and we. And I can speak from my own experience, Grant, that I didn't get as much training into pre-test likelihood or post-test likelihood. And I can see everybody look at me on the Zoom chat here that this is my burning thing. This is my this is my soul talking here. You're having so, some burning right now? Or? Oh, oh yeah. I, 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 I love you, the... We give you the antibiotics and we're not going to test you. <laughs> I think I might need a swab. No, but um, I, I'm more curious if we can explore the concept of pretest likelihood grant. So, for example, without getting lost in the weeds, do a question I have uh, when I first learned about pretest likelihood or this Bayes theorem is: Do I need to know the specific statistics informing the equation of the Bayes theorem beforehand? So for example, do I need to know that it's been researched that a urine dip is 95% sensitive for a UTI or can I use, or can I come to my own conclusion and be like, oh, I think I'm about 95% sure that this is a UTI, for example. I would say you don't have to know any math uh, but you need to know two things. You have to have a sense of how likely the diagnosis is that you're thinking about and where you are on that diagnostic uncertainty line. Uh, and then you have to have a, a concept of how good the tests are in terms of their positive and negative predictive ability. So um, if in a case like this, you've got uh, somebody who has a very high pretest probability of a bladder infection, and you even after talking to the patient, you're comfortable treating it, then you should not do any diagnostic testing. If you were in, uh, in the gray zone, and if you really thought that this was probably an infection, but you're 
a long way from being comfortable that it's not, uh, then you should start doing tests, uh, urine tests, and uh, maybe even in some rare cases, blood tests. Uh, but it, it's, it's not about math. It's more about uh, understanding the concepts uh, that, that uh, it's really important to know what you're thinking the diagnosis is before you order a test and how likely you think the diagnosis is before, before you order a test. So you're saying... I need to think things through. <laughs> Only if you want to, though. <laughs> no, but I think, I, I, I think Alan raises a good point because we, we, we all work in, and, and we've all worked in various hospitals in our career, where it, it, it is a, either a piece of paper or a computer where I just randomly make check marks on a thing, and often that happens before anyone sees the patient. And so, yeah, thinking it through actually probably as, as much as we joke, we probably don't think things through very often. And soon we've wasted $500 in tests that the physician then goes and sees the patient and is like, oh, well, it's all there, but I didn't actually need any of that. So. Okay. Well, let me, um, let me actually, um, because there's a, this other case that I prepared, I, I think it illustrates uh, some of what you were just talking about, Landon, and, and this is actually an exact real case that happened to me on a night shift eh, sometime maybe six months ago, but this is a 23-year-old woman, might be the same 23-year-old woman, uh, but she was walking out of a bar with her friends at midnight. She uh, had had seven drinks, according to her friend. She stumbled and fell down, hit her face on the pavement, got a nosebleed and some facial abrasions, uh, still bleeding a little bit from her nose when she came in. She's confused. Her GCS is about 13, and she's swearing at the nurses. Uh, she has you know, red eyes. She reeks of alcohol. She has nystagmus. Uh, but other than that, has no focal findings. Now, I hadn't seen her. Uh, she was uh, lying in a bed with a C-collar, and the nurse came and said to me, I ordered routine bloods, a tox screen, and an alcohol level. Do you want a head CT? <laughs> uh, because this woman obviously hit her head. She's got a bruised up face, bleeding from her nose, and she's confused. So what do you guys think about that? What do you think about the... Uh, routine labs, which is the CBC, the electrolytes, uh, the alcohol level, the tox screen, and the don't, for, don't forget the lactate, Grant. Uh, well, <laughs> I didn't forget it, but the nurse did. Uh, okay, I, I'll I'll go first on this. Um, I guess for me, I'm. Not, I'm thinking a, a healthy 23-year-old who went out to the bar for the night probably had regular blood work before she decided to fall flat on her face while drunk. And so I'm actually, and, and if she you know, looks like she's not bleeding to death anywhere, I'm actually probably not very interested in routine blood work. And I feel like all the, uh, you know, I can smell the alcohol, I can tell she's had alcohol that all the alcohol level is going to do is uh, be a number on a piece of paper. And I've, I've, I guess I've sort of always felt that about alcohol level. It's like, well, 
whether it's 80 or 120, it's, it's there. So yeah, I guess that would be my thing that the head CT, I guess I've worked in a, in a very large center where we want to install the CT at the front door and just before you get triaged, you get your CT scan. So I think I would feel nervous not CTing her, not seeing her head CT just because, well, what if she goes home and it, and it isn't an epidural or a subdural or something, but I could be totally wrong. That's my opinion. I guess I just want to add a couple of things here. So um, I do think there are differences, whether you're in a site that doesn't have certain diagnostics or learners versus if you are in a site uh, where you do have those resources and learners. But I think this example is something that I saw every day on my shift is this idea that a test is needed in the management of this type of patient. And it's not that you're dispositioning the patient right from triage, so I don't think we need to look at, do I need this test to avoid badness if the patient goes home, because the patient hasn't even seen the provider yet, or right. the person uh, who's going to disposition, decision make them. Good point. I also find this quite interesting because, you know, um, I, I probably am coming from it from a different angle from being, you know, now uh, from being an emerge nurse and now being an NP and thinking about, you know, is this a test that I want to order? Um, and so uh, I think about what you said, Grant, about pretest probability and the pretest probability that this is a bad, there's badness happening there is probably low. Um, based on everything that you're telling me, she doesn't have any focal findings um, and all of those things. Um, I think your point as well, Sherry, is that if you have the capacity to keep her for a bit and watch her get better um, and not get worse, I think that that's a better thing. And I often think about things like CT, uh, CT scans or x-rays and things like that, and um, that they're not benign they're not benign entities, that there is some risk in uh, giving or doing CT scans. I mean, she's 23. In a lifetime, she may require more and more radiation and then may end up with a negative outcome down the road. So am I doing that CT scan because it's the best thing for her? Or am I doing that CT scan because it makes me comfortable uh, that I haven't missed anything? And I struggle with that sometimes because, you know, I often say to patients, I have to go home and sleep. And if, I, if I'm still thinking about you at home, then maybe I didn't do all the tests that I needed to do. So I think that that's where I struggle a little bit with that, right? Like it, the CT head rules do not, they're not for her age group, but she's also got no neurological findings that are concerning. So I think I'd, I'd like to be able to watch her for a little bit and see how she goes because her likelihood of having something bad is going to turn out sooner than later because her brain occupies most of that space. So if she's got even a bit of blood in there, she's gonna get worse sooner. I'm just wondering, um, Landon and Monique, if I could just ask one question at yep. this point and you can tell me if it's appropriate or inappropriate, but when did triage nurses normalize the ordering of tests? And why do we or should we at this point? Because I think back in my career, 
there were times where I ordered nothing. And then we started adding. And then when I think Landon was our manager, we really looked at what the evidence was around ordering tests. Okay. Can we talk about that for a minute before I, we come back to this case? Sure. I, I actually have, I have two answers. One is patient flow. And the moment that EDs became overcrowded, patient flow became the priority. And if I can get blood tests in so that the physician goes and sees them with results and they only see them once, then that will save an hour off their stay. So I think, and, and you know, I, to a degree, I think there's still a role there for that in certain things. If the person's going to, if you look at them, they're going to be admitted anyway. It's like, well, that didn't save much time. So maybe that population is relatively small when we actually map it out. The second thing I think is more of an ego thing. And this is where I know in our career, a number of times, the hospital where, where, we've, where we work, where nurses pretty well without many guidelines order the blood tests that they want. And it's historical and it's just been that way since forever. And when that comes up, the first statement that most nurses make is, but I'm qualified to know what blood tests get, need to be ordered. And so I think that's another part of it is, is we've kind of, uh, nursing has, has progressed as a profession over the last definitely 20, 30 years, leaps and bounds. And that's one of those things that I think a lot of nurses assign that progression to is the ability to order some diagnostics to progress the patient in their care journey. And, and so I think those are my two answers. You know, I love what you've asked, um, Sherry, because I, Sherry and I have taught together. We've, we've done quite a bit together. And one of the things when Sherry was moving to an electronic chart was to really look at uh, practice and, and standardization of practice. And I think as nurses, and when I was the educator, I think as well, when we're looking at nurse-initiated diagnostics, I think it was difficult because there was a number of physicians who would be expecting nurses to have done a certain amount of tests. And it was difficult to, to, deter, to determine who was going to want the test and who was not going to want the test. And so we tried to sit down with a group of them and said, well, what tests do you think that you would all say, yes, let's do these tests? Um, which is why we came up with things like a cardiac panel or an abdominal pain panel or you know, those kind of things to help to facilitate the patient's care so that there's productive wait times. But I think what's gotten lost is that we do it without thinking. Oh, somebody's got abdominal pain and you just click on and get all the blood work without actually reading the chart or seeing the patient and going, oh, I don't think this person needs this test. And I think that that's where the disconnect has, has come from is really that that becomes an expectation. And I, I, I don't have an answer for that, but I do think it's because there's such a range of expectations. And then I think once the nurses and the physicians are expecting their things to be done, then it's almost like, well, I don't understand why, why didn't the nurse do that? Like, why didn't they do the blood test or why didn't they, whatever. I see Alan nodding. <laughs> Well, I think it, it's it's an excellent point to bring up because my opinion is that, one, we're taking the focus away from the patient and we're putting it on the system. So we're nursing a broken system. Number two, I think that 
in the short term game, we think that we are saving time by, say, getting a troponin early rather than uh, having a good conversation about whether or not troponin <laughs> is needed. And it will ultimately cost, you know, speaking from us, we are in a public system, in a tax, in a taxpayer system, so that ultimately it does cost our, our whole country uh, something to be able to order a test. So I don't know if I have an answer. I, I guess my opinion is that I think it's useful, but I think for nursing specifically, we need to differentiate. Are we ordering the tests simply to encourage patient flow or are we ordering the test because we think that it's adding to the patient picture? So I, I, I guess this is very interesting because so diagnostic tests uh, are yeah, between 10 and 15 percent of the cost of the Canadian healthcare system. So something in the range of 20 to 25 billion dollars is spent on lab tests every year. Oh my god. Wow. <laughs> And if, if you believe, uh, as some experts in diagnostic testing do, that only one in 10 of those tests changes a patient's outcome, then we could actually save a lot of money by being more thoughtful about the use of diagnostic tests. And I've I found, because I often talk to residents about diagnostic tests, and I, I don't know if triage nurses are qualified to uh, order diagnostic tests, but I do know when I talk to residents that I work with about diagnostic tests, they usually, if I say, why did you order that test? They usually can't give me a good answer. So they order tests without thought and they order, you know, habitually, they use the term routine test, which there is no such thing as a routine test. And so I guess if I was going to make any comment about nurses ordering tests, I would I would apply the same yardstick to nurses and physicians. I would say, before you can thoughtfully order a test or interpret a test, you need to know what the pretest likelihood is and what it is you're testing for. And so I would say, if anyone's gonna order a test, it wouldn't be a, a triage nurse, it would be the bedside nurse who's had time to sit and talk with the patient, assess the patient and think, hmm, I wonder what's going on with this patient. Yeah. Um, the one exception to that rule and the only time sensitive test that I can think of offhand is an ECG for a patient with chest pain, which should be done at triage. Yes. Uh, everything else, I think, yeah, before you order a test, you should think about it. Anyway, so, so this, this, and why not order a bunch of tests? Well, in, in this case, the CBC, the electrolytes, the tox screen, the alcohol level, and the CT head, that's a $400 investigation. And so I'm just going to take you through my thought processes about the diagnosis of this case. So the first thing, and this is also something I always talk to residents about, is I say, okay, what's the most likely diagnosis here? Any, anyone want to hazard a guess? Fall down, go boom, intoxication. Yeah, alcohol <laughs> intoxication. Yeah. So, so, and what's your pretest likelihood that this patient is is alcohol intoxicated? Ninety-five percent. Yeah, and I said I said ninety-nine percent. 
So this patient has nystagmus, they reek of alcohol, they yeah. just came out of a bar and their friend said they had seven drinks, which probably means 14 drinks. So, so uh, and I loved what Landon said earlier, you don't need an alcohol test, you don't need an ETOH level. If you already know they're intoxicated, why on earth do you do a test if you already know the answer to the test? Mm -hmm. So alcohol levels, hugely overordered, rarely yeah. useful. So uh, I asked the resident, what's the most likely diagnosis? He agrees, he says, alcohol intoxication. Then you also say, okay, well, what's the worst case scenario? What are the things that would be a disaster if we missed them in this case? So what, what are the worst case scenarios here? Uh, Lefort fracture and intracerebral or intracranial hemorrhage are right. the ones that jump out to me. Yeah. So sub, subdural, epidural. Yeah. Um, so that, that's a worst case scenario. Yeah. Um, methanol intoxication, that'd be a disaster. What yeah. if she's depressed, she was at the bar, you know, drank alcohol, which made her feel more suicidal. So she went into the, uh, went into the bathroom and swallowed her antidepressants. Uh, what if she uh, was there with her friends getting drunk and took some fentanyl? So, so the, the other diagnoses, the worst case scenarios I could come up with were, okay, what if this is a toxic alcohol? Well, how many times do people come in uh, with methanol intoxication from a bar? I don't know, not very often. I think that's like a 1%. And I'm happy to just watch that patient. And uh, I'm not going to test for methanol. Uh, subdural, epidural. I have a rule as soon as the patient says FU, that is 100% proof they do not have an intracranial bleed. Exactly. So uh, they have no focal neurologic findings. The, they fell while intoxicated. So I'm pretty comfortable just watching this patient for a little bit and saying, yeah, I feel good that my pretest likelihood of subdural is so low. I didn't, I didn't order a CT. I said, no, I don't think we need that CT. What if they took some other drugs? Should we get a tox screen? Okay, tox screens are always useless. Yeah. If I could ever find a case where a tox screen had been helpful and changed the patient management, I would write a case report because that would be the only time in history a tox screen was ever useful. Uh, all it'll tell you is maybe they've been using some drugs in the last few weeks. Yeah. And they're not even reliable when they identify drugs. What about, what if they took some other drugs? What if they took some fentanyl or some crystal meth? Well, actually, overdoses are not diagnosed with tox screens. They're diagnosed by examining the patient and looking for toxidromes. So do they have an opioid toxidrome? Is there a respiratory rate four? Do they have meiotic pupils? Yeah. Uh, are they sedated? Do they have a sedative hypnotic picture? Uh, are they hyperactive, tachycardic? Do they have amphetamines on board? It's totally clinical. Yeah. So in fact, um, my thought was this patient required no tests whatsoever. Uh, <laughs> she didn't need any of the tests that were ordered. And as it turns out, uh, you know, her alcohol level was high. She got better and went home. That's question for, uh, question for you, uh, uh, Grant. Now, this might be a bit of a landmine. Can you tell me about the burden of proof? 
So say, for example, we use this lady that's come out of the bar. She's got an excellent story, very reliable um, that she fell and she's got um, facial fractures. She's had seven drinks, her friends, and and she states that. But how does this play out uh, with respect to burden of proof if we decide to forego a CT scan of her head and say she ends up with a subdural? So, so that's, that's the, um, that's the question that you ask yourself, uh, when you're at the bedside and it's a question that comes into mind every single time you examine a patient like this, do they have a subdural? Do they have an epidural? And, uh, so I think what you can say Uh, When you leave the bedside, as you can say, this person appears to be intoxicated. They have no focal neurologic findings. They're responding to voice. Uh, I feel comfortable that at this moment in time, no neurosurgeon in their right mind would uh, be entering this person's brain. And if I was thinking I'm going to discharge them immediately, then I would think uh, I worry more about whether or not I do a CT scan. But if I have the opportunity to observe the patient a little longer, which was the case here because this person couldn't walk, then I would actually watch the patient because they're either going to get better or they're going to get worse. Exactly. So I, I would, I think that uh, the CT scan, yeah, that's complete completely based on the physician's level of comfort and where their decision threshold is and how risk averse they are or how confident they are in their clinical evaluation. But most of the time, I think these people don't need CTs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's I agree great. with you, Grant. I think that, uh, you know, when I, I can't even remember who told me this, but they said that diagnosis is about 80% history and 20% clinical exam. And so the history points to the woman is drunk and you do a clinical exam and you're like the woman is drunk then you've got your diagnosis you don't really need anything else but if you do a history and the history doesn't make any sense and then the clinical picture doesn't match the history then you're like okay i need something else because this is this i can't figure out because this doesn't two plus two doesn't equal four here so i love that whole concept and you know alan the thing is that I think people think that you don't get sued if you do everything right. That's not true. People are going to sue you whether you do everything right or whether you do everything wrong. That's their, that they just do that, right? They'll say, you'll hear from my attorney, whatever it is. And it, if, as long as you can say that I did the most prudent and other people would say that was prudent. He followed uh, the rules. It didn't meet any rules. The clinical picture was this. There's no reason why Grant should have done the CT scan. And it's very rare that somebody would get a subdural with that kind of clinical picture. And when the patient left, Grant said, if you are having more pain, you have all of these things, come back. None of us are, you know, able to 100% predict what exactly is going on. As long as you leave them with a, you can come back, then, you know, I, I think it's a very difficult or something I try really hard not to think about is, is the decision that I'm making about the diagnostic test burden of proof? Or is it because I actually think that that's what the patient needs? And I try really hard not to think of it that way. Because I, like I said, those are not benign tests. 
Landon and I've done a previous podcast with our hematologist, um, transfusion medicine doctor, who said, Dr. She. Yes, Dr. She, who talked about physiological or um, anemia that we cause by doing too many blood tests and ICUs. You know, I think that, you know, it's, it's important for us to think about the cumulative effect of ordering CTs after CTs after CTs as well for burden of proof as opposed to clinical uh, decision making. I don't know. I'm going to get off my high horse now. Sorry about that. No, <laughs> but I, I like what you said because, uh, you know, you said that if, if you're, you've examined the patient, you've talked to the patient, you're trying to pull it together and it doesn't make sense, then you're in that gray zone. And yeah. when you're in a gray zone, then you have to think about, okay, I need a test. I need a test either to make me feel comfortable that the diagnosis isn't there or to prove that it is there. Yeah. But it's only when you're in that gray zone that you need to do a diagnostic test. And yeah. if you think, uh, if you're comfortable, you looked at the patient, you think, no, I don't, I don't believe they have that diagnosis and I'm comfortable right now that they don't have that diagnosis, then you don't have to do the test. That's great. Awesome. I love this. Me too. <laughs> now, did you have another case, Grant? Well, I had, I had one last case. So this is not the 23-year-old woman. This is the 52-year-old man who comes in complaining of right-sided chest pain for 12 hours. He feels a little short of breath. Oh, no. He's an otherwise healthy guy. Okay. with no past medical history, except he returned home from Europe five days ago. Oh. You had to have a D-dimer one, didn't you? <laughs> uh-huh. But wait, she's not on hormone replacement therapy? She's not a smoker? So I didn't even bring that in. <laughs> it's a he. So well, Norm- he, came back, he came back from Europe. Is this COVID? Does he have any That's kind right. of respiratory symptoms? There you go. And th- those are good questions. <laughs> so normal vital signs, normal physical exam, CBC, ECG, chest x-ray are normal, but this patient still feels dyspneic and got off an airplane and you're worried about a PE. So Damn it. Is it appropriate Ugh. to do a D-dimer? So we did do a podcast about this, about the Wells criteria and pretest probability. And does he have it? I'm going to ask another question. Does he have any calf pain? No. Okay. And no history of blood clots. No history of blood clots. And you totally said, it, guy. okay. And you said his ECG and his chest x-ray look totally fine. They look normal. Uh, I think, uh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think that I I'll, think that I would do a D-dimer. Because if the D-dimer was elevated and the story, like you do have to rule it out. If the D-dimer is normal, then I would feel very comfortable that it's probably not a PE and he could probably go home. If the D-dimer is elevated with that history, I think then I would feel that I would need to go ahead and order a CT of the chest to rule it out. Okay. And so... The whole point of this little case is that there are strong tests and there are weak tests. And for example, if you have somebody with a headache and you do a lumbar puncture and it's normal, 
that is an extremely strong negative test. And so you can use that test and that is good and that rules out meningitis and subarachnoid hemorrhage with certainty. Uh, if, if you have a ele elevated troponin in a patient that looks like they have ischemic chest pain, that's a very strong positive test and they almost certainly have uh, an acute coronary syndrome. Uh, on the other hand, if you have uh, somebody with abdominal pain and they have an elevated white blood cell count, that is a very weak positive predictor. And uh, that weak test can't really change your impression of disease very much. So if you have kind of a medium pretest likelihood and an elevated white blood cell count, that doesn't actually change your likelihood very far. And you would never take a patient to the operating room because they have abdominal pain and an elevated white blood cell count because it's not a very strong test. Yeah. Similarly, if somebody had abdominal pain and a normal white blood cell count, it's such a weak test. It doesn't take you very far on your pretest likelihood line. It doesn't change pretest likelihood. So there's strong tests and there's weak tests. So how, if you have a, a positive D-dimer, uh, would you say that's a strong test or a weak test? Weak. Yeah, positive D-dimer <laughs> is really, yeah. really weak. Mm -hmm. And in fact, about 90% of the time when the D-dimer is positive, the patient has nothing wrong with them. Yeah. You can get uh, a positive D-dimer just from looking at someone funny. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and uh, as a negative test, is it, well, how would you, what would you say about a D-dimer as a negative test? Strong, weak, medium? It's strong, I think, if it's, weak, if it's negative. Well, maybe it's medium. Okay. Um, like, um, like so, so the point of this test is, again, you can never order a test without having a sense of what's your pretest probability or pretest likelihood of disease. So if this is somebody and you're thinking, I'm worried about a PE, but either clinically or by using Wells score, this is a low-risk patient and I'm really close to that negative decision threshold, I'm almost comfortable enough to send them home, then a D-dimer is a strong enough test that I don't have to go to further imaging if it's negative. Uh, but if you look at the patient and you think, oh, or you or the Wells score says, this is a high-risk patient, then there's no point even doing a D-dimer because it's not strong enough to mm -hmm. take you out of that gray zone you, if you want to try and rule out a PE in somebody that's high risk, actually, then you need to do some imaging. You need a CT angiogram. Yeah. So, so again, it's the, the point here is that not only do you have to understand pretest likelihood, but once you've established your pretest likelihood, i.e., I think my diagnosis is very likely or uh, only a little bit likely, you're going to use totally different types of tests depending on what your pretest likelihood is. And so there's that, a, oh, yeah, no, sorry. I was just gonna say, there's a sad truism that weak tests are cheap. So a D-dimer is like 25 bucks. A CTPE is like a thousand bucks. Yeah. Uh, so strong tests tend to be either expensive or invasive, while weak tests tend to be cheap. 
so it is actually important to know when you use one or the other. Now that would be $1,000 Canadian. So it'd be like oh, 1300 Canadian uh, us, right? It'll be 40 bucks us. Yeah. yeah. 40 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> so Grant, this is a really interesting and it's probably a little off topic and I'm, it's probably a personal thing. If I have a patient that I have a strong suspicion that they have a DVT in their calf, they've got swelling, they've got, you know, uh, a history of um, immobility, that sort of thing. I never do a D-dimer. I just get an ultrasound because I think, well, what's the point of me getting a D-dimer? Because I'm worried about a clot. He needs an ultrasound. He doesn't need a D-dimer. And I have been told by some people that I should be doing both. And I go, I don't see why, because his leg is more swollen. He's got a really good history. Uh, my pretest probability is it's higher. Um, so I'm just going to go ahead and do the ultrasound. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that the principle is exactly the same, that uh, you have to decide do I think this is a high-risk high case, a high pretest probability for DVT or low pretest probability for DVT? So if somebody comes in, you know, and, and their tenderness really isn't over the deep veins or it happened while they were, you know, climbing stairs or, uh, and I, if I think, well, I don't really think they have a, a DVT or, you know, there's a well score for DVT as well if you want to use it. Uh, and so for a low-risk patient, I, I actually would do a D-dimer and send them home if the D-dimer is negative. But if you're, like you said, if you've got a higher-risk patient and you think, yeah, this is probably a DVT, then the D-dimer is not adequate and you need to have imaging. Hmm. That's interesting. That's helpful. Thank you. So as a nurse that triages daily, well, I guess not as daily as usual, but as a triage nurse, then what I'm hearing here is that pretest probability should inform whether or not I order tests for a patient. And now that I learn more about it, at triage, I really only have about 15 to 20 seconds to meet someone. And I wonder if that, if I need to order tests to prove something or to disprove something, they should probably go to a place or a space where a nurse can provide um, their attention more readily than I can at triage. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of a nerd, so I gotta ask. We talked about pre-test probability, but what about post-test probability? So say if you sent, save this for this man with a, went on a trip, now has dyspnea, normal vital signs, normal exam, goes for his, and the D-dimer is middle of the road, goes for his CT scan, and it comes back inconclusive. So how am I supposed to interpret that? So that would be that post-test probability, right, Grant? Yeah, well, and so... Um... So pretest probability is what is the likelihood that disease is present before I've done any testing, i.e. based on my clinical evaluation. Post-test probability is the modified likelihood that the disease is present, taking into account the results of the tests that I've done. And so um, the type of test you need uh, if you're very close to a decision threshold 
you don't need a very powerful test. Uh, if, if, if you're a long way from a, a diagnostic threshold, you need a powerful test. And uh, so the strength of a test is expressed by a statistic called a likelihood ratio. Um, but anyway, a, a test that has a strong likelihood ratio can move you much farther on that diagnostic con continuum. It can change your pretest likelihood to a post-test likelihood that's more satisfactory. So that's the reason we do tests is to modify pretest likelihood and to take us to a post-test likelihood that we're happy with making a decision. Um, so in, in, if, if you said, well, the CT is not definitive in this case, well, that's tough because most CT scans come back either as positive or negative. You know, and, and there, like any diagnostic test, there are false positives and false negatives. Uh, and I guess if you disagreed, if you got a negative CT and then, but you thought, oh no, I really think this patient has a PE despite this negative CT scan, then I guess uh, you'd probably have to uh, talk to the radiologist and say, would you look at that scan again? I'm really worried about that patient. And do you think, uh, you know, should, should we do a, a formal pulmonary arteriogram? Should we do some other testing? Uh, what, what you might do is say, oh, I'm going to do a, a Doppler study of the legs because mm -hmm. um, if I find a clot in either of the legs, then I'm going to say, you know what, this is a problem we're going to anticoagulate the patient but uh, i think most of the time the cts are they tend to give you a yes or a no answer i think it's more with an um and i heard i've heard you talk about this before grant um i think at the five and five conference with the the late dr rosen you guys were all talking about um things that have uh, over over the years that you kind of think, oh, I wish that didn't happen. I wish we held on to whatever. And I think one of the things that you talked about was abdominal pain and appendicitis um, and your pre-test, post-test um, whole uh, discussion is really around, to me, it, it struck me about abdominal pain because I, especially with women with abdominal pain, right lower quadrant abdominal pain, and you know they're young, you examine them, the history sounds very much like, Mm, it could be an appendicitis, but then again, it could also be an ovarian cyst. And then they go and they have their ultrasound and they, you can't see the appendix, but um, the ovary looks normal. But the clinical sign is like, you are sure they're positive McBurney's, the history is great. Maybe their white count isn't really particularly high, um, but you're like, I am sure that this is an appendicitis. And I think those are the ones that I struggle a little bit with because I'm like, I wish you'd just come down and see the patient because if you examine them and the ultrasound is negative and I know I can't see the appendix, but I'm telling you, it's an appendicitis. I don't need another test. I know clinically it's an appendicitis. And now sometimes surgeons will say to me, well, can you get a CT? And I'm like, listen, if you came and examined this person just based on your exam, I'm telling you, this person has an appendicitis. I just had this case this week. I had a man who came in who had like his stomach had like generalized abdominal pain. It localized to the right side. It hurt more when he was walking. I lost his appetite. 
I examined him and he jumped off the bed and I thought, I don't even care what the, this man has an appendicitis. I know he has an appendicitis, but I had to go through the tests. I had to do the ultrasound, but I told him, I'm pretty sure this is a appendicitis. I'm going to do the ultrasound, but if they don't see the appendix, I'm going to be in trouble because I'm going to have to call them and then we have to discuss whether you need a CT or not. So I'm going to give you your Telebrex now well, before the ultrasound. <laughs> um, because if I if they don't see it, they're going to want to have a CT. And it just frustrates me because if they clinically put their hand on the abdomen and saw the patient, they would know it's an appendicitis. So I, I share your frustration. <laughs> Several years ago, we implemented a process whereby we would do an Alvarado score, uh, yeah. which is an appendicitis score. And if the patient had a high Alvarado score, the surgeon would come and see the patient. Yeah. Uh, that never worked. The surgeons never saw the patient until there was a CT result. Um, but this is a great opportunity for me to be a total geek and talk about the concept of the positive decision threshold, which yeah. is how comfortable do you have to be that the patient has the diagnosis before you initiate care? So how far does your diagnostic test have to take you before you're going to initiate care for that case? And in order to determine your positive um, diagnostic threshold, it depends totally on the morbidity of the treatment. So if we're talking about somebody who might have a UTI, I only need to be 70% sure that it's a UTI because I, th I think I'm not gonna hurt them very much if I incorrectly give them antibiotics. Yeah. The surgeon is saying, you know what? I wanna be 98% sure that this is appendicitis because the treatment involves going to the operating room, opening their abdomen, uh, operating on something, giving them adhesions. And, and so they're not willing to set their decision threshold down at 90%. They wanna be 100 by 98% sure. So in, in a way, I think that, ah, okay, I guess that's what they're thinking. Yeah. Interesting. I love that. God, I'm such, such nerds. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think? Is there wow. anything, last, last words, maybe? Yeah. Uh, last words of wisdom um, from uh, the wonderful, incomparable uh, Ms. Sherry Stackhouse. Any last words? Well, I'm rather overwhelmed by that incredible amount of information and conversation. So I think we've covered um, how we got into nurses ordering tests. We've had some conversation around that. I think that we've touched on the downsides to ordering tests at triage because we might not be ordering the right one. We've added cost and work effort to the staff on the inside. Um, I always wanna know if we're adding value to either the patient or the staff. And so I've heard from Alan um, and yourself and Landon about patient flow is so important. So, and then the final thing, I just wanna talk about have sites evaluated, so have sites in British Columbia evaluated the use of diagnostic ordering at triage. And so we have a fellow health authority beside us that has for years done this. 
And I did poke them a while back about have they evaluated any outcomes. And we've only just started to look at what Vancouver Coastal and Providence and Monique, to your point, yeah. um, when we went to standardize the triage ordering, um, so we looked, we invited um, yourself and providers from all the sites. There was so much discussion about who wanted what test for what condition. And then for something like chest pain, we got a lot of pushback from the nurses because they all wanted chest x-rays to be in the chest pain order set, yeah. um, which makes absolutely no sense. No, yeah. I love that you're saying that, um, Sherry, because I think that um, so often we do things without researching them or without evaluating them. And I, you know what, that's such a great point. And I don't understand why this is a great uh, nursing uh, research, right? Like about nurse led um, diagnostics or nurse initiated diagnostics. I think this would be a, a incredible uh, study to look at. I, I think it's interesting because the message the first time was, was wouldn't it be great if the physician can go in one time yeah. and see the patient once and they have everything they need to just make a decision. I, you know, here I am 15, 20 years on later sitting here thinking, hmm, have I ever actually asked physicians if going in and seeing the patient twice was such a burden? And did they go in with all the answers once and actually send the person home? That's it. I'm done. Actually, that's really rare. They usually go in with all the answers and say, or all the diagnostics and go, okay, well, you know, we have your test results. That's great. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, I'm going to have you see a specialist or I'm going to, I'm not as convinced anymore that it actually saved so much time in the end unless it was someone who just came in with a minor treatment thing. And mm -hmm. we, I, I, I can't even honestly think of the group right now because that's how much I'm convinced almost. Um, it's helpful if it's like a single system. I broke my ankle, you know, if I have an x-ray. Let's and get I you an x-ray. Right, yeah. like that's helpful. But I think, but I I'm like thinking, I'm thinking that patient flow acute care group that we are yeah. the ones we worry about. Like you come in with your abdominal pain. Oh, I put in their blood work at triage. Did that really save much time? Because the reality is they need hands on them. They need, yeah. uh, they need a good history taking. They need some yeah. follow up. They, they need pain control. They, <laughs> right. And so is a physician going to go in with some blood work results and go, well, it, it looks like your blood works normal. See ya. Or yeah. are they going to go, well, you're still having abdominal pain, so let's get something on board and let's get an IV in you and let's blah, blah, blah. It, did that blood work really lead to anything? I'm, I'm like what my host's podcast probability of being convinced <laughs> that it was useful is uh, 99%. I probably have not been actually adding much to the value of the visit by robotically putting blood work in at triage. And that's my, those are my final thoughts. Well, I think what you've, what you've actually talked about, Landon, is that the value of trending, right? The value of assessment and reassessment um, from a clinical perspective, right? Like, what does the patient look like now? Um, I'd like to come in and especially those gray zone patients, right? Like you're going in and you're like, oh, okay, well, they seem to be okay. Um, 
And then you come back in and you're like, oh, wait a minute, they look kind of gray now. What what the heck happened here? Um, and I think that that trending of being able to have uh, multiple times that you see them and reassess them, I think is invaluable as a clinician. Yeah. Um, I think nurses have always felt that. Um, and I do think that physicians uh, probably do really find that helpful. And I do see a trend or a change in the way that uh, physicians actually write their reassessment findings on their charts now, which I think is valuable. Oh, there's my, maybe my last word. Uh, Grant, anything from you? Well, I guess, um, I guess, you know, what, what Sherry said struck me like I, I can't let that pass. Uh, ordering chest x-rays at triage, that, it, that would be complete insanity. Um, <laughs> and, and, and mostly because 90% of people with chest pain don't need a chest x-ray. Um, but with, with respect to the other uh, side of it, how, what's the utility and how much value does it add uh, for nurses to order tests? For, for sure, if a nurse was going to order a test and then discharge the patient, that would absolutely add clinical value. If a physician still has to go assess the patient and evaluate the patient, then the nurse-ordered test is not going to change the patient's outcome. Yeah. Uh, however, in the right setting, it might change an operational outcome like a length of stay. Mm. So, I mean, I've talked about you know, how should you think about ordering tests, i.e. know what you're testing for, know what the pretest likelihood is, know what the right test is, and then order that test, sort of a thoughtful way of ordering tests. If you're in a setting where your physicians order tests indiscriminately and want all sorts of tests on every patient, then it's almost futile for you to limit yourself to ordering tests thoughtfully yeah. And so there are some um, cultural um, things that come into play, I guess, when you're talking about nurses ordering tests and why should nurses be more thoughtful than the physicians in, in ordering tests. Yeah. That's great. And I think Alan hasn't had a final. Oh, we're giving Alan the final word, a final, final word? Well, I don't think so. I think you and I probably need to say the Cheerios, but... I wished actually that you guys could actually see what Alan is wearing um, on his podcast today. It's quite something. It's, oh no, he's standing up. <laughs> okay, he, he does have pants on everyone, thank goodness. So Alan, you know, final words. My big takeaway from all of this is um, as a, a specifically from the lens as I transition to a different career will I, where I will be fully responsible for what I order and what I test for. One, I'm partly reassured that I don't need hard statistics demonstrating why I am ordering a test as includes both gestalt as well as physical exam. So I'm, 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 I'm happy that I don't need to know that the positive predictive value of a urine dipstick for a UTI is 1.56 or something to those to those ends. <laughs> Number two is I'm concerned about my RN practice in that I'm going to be much slower 
because I'm going to be more methodical and thoughtful behind the decisions I make when I order tests. And I think it's a good thing because I think that ultimately the patient in front of me benefits from that. Wow. That was, that was very profound, Alan. I know. It a bit shocked me. I know. I because he was drinking whiskey. I'm not sure. God, he can be and I think smart. It was the whiskey talking or something. <laughs> All well, right. That was, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us. And it was great to have a peek into the great Dr. Grant Innes's brain um, to see what the thought processes are. And I do think that at the end of the day, I do think I don't want you to lose the fact that Grant said that nurses should order ECGs uh, for patients who are having cardiac chest pain up at triage. That is um, a, still a value. Uh, I know we were mostly talking about blood tests and urine tests, and we didn't really touch on radiology, like following the Ottawa ankle rules or seeing somebody with an obvious deformity. Uh, maybe that should be another um, podcast down the road. So we don't want to talk about that right now, but I wanted to thank everybody for their great brain power. And until next time, I guess. Yes. Thank you so much, Sherry Grant, special yeah. guest, Alan. And uh, as all, well, you're always here, Monique. So thank you. I know, but I made cookies and you couldn't even eat them. Sorry. Our, our podcast marriage continues. Over here. <laughs> all right. Thanks everyone. Bye. And we thanks, will see guys. you next time. Bye. Bye. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember, before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education. www.prneducation.ca